Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called to you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. So bring words. Let's keep them in the back of our minds as we read Romans chapter 2. Verses 12 to 29. Regarding how the people of Israel were still, these many years later, trusting in the outward aspects of their identity as a community and their access to holy things without actually a hard obedience to the law of God. Romans 2, verses 12 through 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law... By nature, do what the law requires. 
They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision, indeed, is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Amen. You may be seated. There's a well-known principle in criminal law that says, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. You can just imagine how convenient it would be for for criminals if, if you could defend yourself legally by just getting up in court and saying, um, I'm sorry, I didn't know it was against the law. I didn't know, so you can't punish me. I didn't know it was against the law to rob that bank. And so you can't punish me for doing it. You can't lock me up. Well, obviously that would be absurd, right? Courts have to work from the assumption that most people do generally have a pretty good working knowledge of the laws that apply to them and their activities. And so in most cases, you, you can't just say, oh, I didn't know. Ignorance of the law is no excuse because the court assumes that you're not ignorant of the law. Assume that you know it. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about um, that idea of God's equal opportunity judgment. That's described in verses 1 through 11 of this chapter. So how God is going to render to every person according to his works. And that applies to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, or the Gentile, non-Jews. And so as we're following Paul's train of thought here, you could imagine uh, a possible objection, right? Wait a second, how can God 
judge Jews and Gentiles by the same law. When Israel has always had um, the law of Moses, but everybody else hasn't had access to that law. The Gentiles don't have access to that written law code, and so is it really fair for God to judge them for not living by it when they've never read it? Well, that's, what, that's what we're picking up on today, or that's where we're, where we're picking up the thread today. And um, So our three points this morning are going to be these. First of all, people who don't have the law but do it. That's verses 12 to 16. The second one is going to be about people who have the law, but don't do it. Okay, that's verses 17 to 24. And then the third point will be turning our expectations inside out. Verses 25 to 29. Okay, you got that? So people who don't have the law, but do it. People who have the law, but don't do it. And then last, turning our expectations inside out. All right, so first let's talk about that first group of people, the people who don't have the law, but do it anyway. Verse 12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. In other words, even if you don't have a copy of the law of Moses, you can still sin against it. That's Paul's point here. God will still hold you accountable for that sin, not on the basis of something you didn't know, but actually on the basis of what you did know. Something you have to understand is that Paul uses the word law here in a couple of different ways, two different senses in this passage. There's kind of a broader sense and a narrower sense. The broader meaning, in a broad sense, the law means God's will about how people ought to live. God's will about how people ought to live. Then there's the narrower meaning. The, we might call it the law with a capital L. And that, that's the law of Moses. That's the, the written law, specially revealed to Israel. And the law of Moses records, encodes, proclaims in a special way that broader law of God, which applies to everybody, whether you have access to the written version or not. They're not really two different laws. It's the same law. One is God's will in general, and one is where it's specially spelled out for us in, in a written form. Now, starting in verse 14, Paul explains that even people who have never read that written law with a capital L, they do have some access to God's law in the broader sense. God's will about how people ought to live. And here's how we know that. Paul's going to prove it for us. He's going to demonstrate it. Here's the evidence that people actually do know God's law. Sometimes they keep it. Sometimes they keep it. Outwardly, anyway. In terms of external actions. Keeping the rules. Sometimes Gentiles who do not have the law, Paul says, are actually pretty good at that. Sometimes they actually do what the law requires. The question is, why? What accounts for that? How does that happen? Well, Paul says they do it by nature. They do it by nature. It comes naturally to them. They just know. 
They just know some things are right and some things are wrong. Nobody ever had to prove it to them. They could never seriously doubt it. Some things people just know. You shouldn't kill each other. You shouldn't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. You shouldn't steal somebody else's husband or wife. These are the sorts of things that people in all different places and times and cultures have generally agreed about. Uh, They've been baked into the law codes of all kinds of human civilizations down through the ages. And and not just that, it hasn't just been uh, something that people have acknowledged, but many people in history have actually kept many of those rules much of the time. Okay? Now, nobody has kept all of them all the time, right? But that's not Paul's point. He's not saying that the Gentiles can somehow perfectly keep God's law and then be justified in that way on their own. Um, They have not done this. That's not his point, though. He says, when they do, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, sometimes they do, often they don't, but when they do, when they do keep it, they're demonstrating something very important, verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. The work of the law is written on their hearts. Not in a book. They're not going and reading the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. But there is something inside them they can't ignore. They know at least some of what God requires of them. And so when it, they inevitably end up breaking that law... When they act contrary to that inward sense of morality that they do possess, they can't plead ignorance. They can't say, oh, but I didn't know that was wrong. The Lord is going to say on the day of judgment, Paul says here, but you did know. You did know. The work of the law was written on your heart and your conscience all along, was bearing witness within you, either excusing you when you did the right thing or accusing you when you knew that what you did was wrong. You know, sometimes a a TV detective will catch the criminal not when he tells a lie, but when he says something true that he never could have known if he was innocent. If, If he hadn't been there at the scene of the crime, like he, like he said he wasn't. You can imagine Paul being like Columbo. And there's just this one thing that keeps bothering me. You were just saying that you didn't know the law of God. But what about, what about all those times when you did keep it? That's what's bothering me. Why did you keep it then if you didn't know anything about it? Right? They do know it. And they've broken it. Now, before we go on, I want to clarify something here. When people summarize the the message of Romans 2, they'll often say, I've actually often said, and I'm I'm planning to change how I put this from now on, actually, after looking a little more closely. People will say, Paul teaches that the Gentiles have God's law written on their hearts. That's not exactly what he says, though. He says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And you say, well, what's the difference? That sounds like pretty... Tiny distinction. Well, what I'm trying to do is I want to separate what Paul is saying here from another um, similar-sounding idea in the Bible that actually means something very different. Uh, And that's in Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant, 
where God says that one day he is going to write his law on the hearts of his people. He's going to write his law on the hearts of his people. I will put my law within them, he says, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that simply is not what Paul is describing here in Romans 2. See, Jeremiah there is promising a day when our relationship with God won't be at root a matter of outward conformity and ritual. Our obedience is going to flow, rather, from an inward devotion of loyalty and love for God. That's what characterizes the new covenant, where we're embracing that inward reality of the covenant, that God is ours, and we are his, and that's why we obey him. That's not what Paul's describing in verse 15 of this chapter. These Gentiles who sometimes manage to keep the outward rules of moral conduct some of the time... They don't have the law of God written on their hearts in in that sense, the Jeremiah 31 sense of new covenant blessing. But, But that's not what Paul's claiming. What he's saying is they have the work of the law written on their hearts. What that means is it's the rules, this this basic knowledge of right and wrong, human conduct, and it's on the basis of that knowledge that God will justly hold them accountable. All right. In verse 17, we kind of turn a corner. Paul goes back to talking about a different kind of person. This is the kind of person who does have the written law of Moses. But despite that great advantage, that that really huge leg up, really, that ought to make it much easier to keep the law than their Gentile counterparts, even though they have the law, they don't keep it. So on the one hand, you have a hypothetical person who's, who's trying to get off the hook by pleading ignorance. Oh, I didn't know. On the other hand, you have a different hypothetical person who's trying to get off the hook by claiming to be some kind of legal expert. Oh, no, I know the law. I know the law so well that there's no way it could possibly condemn me. I know it too well for that. I can cite you chapter and verse. I can give you all the ins and outs. I'm, I'm part of the inner circle. These people that God decided out of all the world, he was going to give the law to us, that law with a capital L. And so, basically, I can do no wrong. Well, we went over this last time, how just... Having the law of Moses doesn't help you at all if you don't actually live by it. Proximity to holy things doesn't make you holy. Living in the atmosphere of the law doesn't make you more righteous. Outward religious activity does not give you any guarantee of a heart that is right with God. If anything... Those things highlight and underline your sin all the more. See, it's bad enough to sin against the natural law, that knowledge of God's law that comes naturally to people. But surely it's even worse, don't you think? It's even worse to sin against the clear, spelled out, explicit, verbal revelation of God's law in the Bible. When it's so clear, there's just no excuse for it. So Paul really lights into these people 
who rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed in the law and you even, he says, you even fancy yourselves a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. You want to teach other people the law, but you won't teach yourself. We talked about this last time, how people practice what they preach against. You preach against stealing, but you steal. You, you say people shouldn't commit adultery, but there you are committing adultery, and, and so on. Uh, and, and he talks about how you boast about having the law, but then you dishonor God by breaking it. You open God's name up to ridicule by outsiders who can see this is just rank hypocrisy. Nothing brings dishonor on the name of Christ like the hypocrisy Christians. When we say one thing, but we live a very different way. You probably heard about the U.S. senator who was indicted recently on some big-time corruption and bribery charges on the news. And the big irony you may have heard was that this guy made his early career in government by fighting corruption. That's how he made a name for himself wearing the white hat, bringing the law to bear against others who were corrupt in government. But now he's seeing that same law that he used to wield against others being wielded against him. Knowing the law, using the law, being a champion for the law doesn't absolve that man from the guilt of breaking the law himself. If anything, it makes it worse. You know this stuff. You know how serious it is. You fought these kinds of crimes and others. And, and that's what gives us that kind of slimy feeling when we hear that a politician has done something like this. It's not just this man's, you know, this is common kind of thing that happens in the halls of power. And we just think, ah, oh, you've been doing exactly the thing that outwardly you were crusading against. Got to be on guard against hypocrisy. That's not just something for the corrupt politicians of our day. That's what's happening whenever you knowingly sin against the law of God. You know that it's wrong. You would even tell other people that it's wrong, but you see yourself somehow as a special case, and in that moment you can't see clearly. You can see clearly, and you just want to do it anyway. This is grave spiritual danger for the people of God. It brings great dishonor. On God's name. Remember that searchlight that I talked about last time? We are so good at shining it on others. We so often want to hide behind it and not come under that searching beam ourselves. Beware of this. Okay, now we have to ask the question, what accounts for this? How can you have all these people who are so close to the law of God, they know the law of God so well, they even celebrate it, advocate for it, and yet they can't seem to keep it. How can that happen? The end of the chapter helps to answer that question. It's because these people that Paul has in mind, these law-breaking legal experts, are thinking about the law all wrong from the roots up. They are thinking about the law as mainly an external, outward formal, ritual thing. When God's law is actually supposed to be an 
inward thing, engaging the heart and soul and mind and strength of a whole person. And so we come to our last point, turning our expectations inside out. When Paul wants to talk about how the Jewish religion of his day has become misguided, he often in his letters will single out um, this single issue of circumcision. For Paul, um, circumcision stands for people's kind of preoccupation with the outward symbolic ritual aspects of the law to the expense of the inward heart loyalty aspects of the law. Circumcision, he says, is indeed a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, if you keep the law of Moses, well, then that outward sign of the covenant is a great blessing for you because, for you, it symbolizes that holiness and separateness and devotion to God that the whole law represents, all there in um, symbolic form. But remember that that covenant sign from the very beginning was always a double-edged symbol. It symbolizes both judgment and salvation, both the blessings and the curses of the covenant. Remember that it is a bloody sign where flesh is cut away, symbolizing the covenant judgment on those who do not keep the law. And so if you have the covenant sign, but then you go on and break the law, what are you bringing on yourself? You're bringing on yourself not the blessing that circumcision promises to law keepers, but the judgment that that sign guarantees to law breakers. See, the Jewish people of Paul's day considered that outward sign a badge of honor, the the mark of belonging to the special chosen people. And so that means that we're guaranteed the favor of God over against that Gentile world out there that God is one day going to judge them, but he's going to bless us because we're special. And Paul's saying, you're forgetting that this sign cuts both ways. If you're not keeping God's law, you are on the wrong side of that symbolism of the covenant sign. You're setting yourself up to be judged along with the Gentile world. You're like those people in Jeremiah's time that we read about earlier saying, oh, we don't have anything to worry about. We have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, yay. Not realizing that the Lord of the temple was about to come in judgment against them because of the ways they had defiled it by their sin and rebellion. Verse 26, then, Paul takes this logic a step further. This is a very... Very dramatic, very unexpected kind of turn of logic that would never have occurred to the average uh, Israelite of Paul's day. In fact, this would have sounded very offensive. It's it's like Paul's saying, hear me out here. Let's think about this. Let's think about this. If breaking God's law puts you in the same boat as the Gentiles, where you deserve the same judgment they're going to get in spite of having the covenant sign, if that's true, What if it works the other way around? Just imagine, if you will, turning that coin over. What if it could work the other way around? Imagine there was a Gentile who didn't have the covenant sign, but he did keep every other aspect of the law of God perfectly. Would that person be better off 
or worse off than a Jew who broke the law. Paul's saying here, surely it's better to be a Gentile law keeper than to be a Jewish law breaker. So having that ethnic label and heritage and the outward sign of Jewish identity, that's not what God really values. And if you think it is, then you've missed the whole point of the Old Testament. Paul's not contradicting the Old Testament here. Some, sometimes people might think, oh, Paul's saying, oh, he's rejecting Old Testament teaching in favor of something new. No, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to point people to what the Old Testament said about covenant identity. When Paul says in verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. He's not contradicting the Old Testament teaching there. He is basing his argument upon the Old Testament. He's simply carrying forward what the Old Testament itself says about these things. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and 10, God tells the people of Israel back then, before they've even entered the land of Canaan, that the big problem with Israel was that they weren't circumcised in their hearts. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, near the end of the book, Moses looks forward to the day when the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That has always been the point of this sign. It's always been about an inward reality, which the outward ritual symbolized. And if this sounds familiar, it's because this is very much the way we speak of baptism today. Think about it. Water baptism doesn't do you any good if you do not embrace in faith the gospel promises that it represents. In fact, in that case, it works quite the other way. Because like circumcision, that water too symbolizes both salvation and judgment. That sign of the new covenant symbolizes both judgment and salvation. I want you to notice that even as this section then is a very sobering warning to the Jewish people of Paul's time who were trusting in the wrong thing. The same section, though, holds out an amazing hope, an amazing opportunity for non-Jews like most of us. It's offering the opportunity for us to find a place in the covenant community of the people of God to become what Paul would call true children of Abraham. Not by ethnicity, but by faith. By embracing inwardly the heart of the covenant, that relationship of loyalty and love for God that he's always been looking for from his people. God doesn't have two plans of salvation. One for Israel, one for the Jews, and then another one that he started in the New Testament for the church. No. Old Testament and New Testament alike are teaching us this. Where do you find true Israel? All through time. It's among the people of faith. Where do you find true Israel today? After the coming of Christ, you find it in the church. This is not a, a different or a second covenant community. It simply is the covenant community of the people of God. That's what Paul is telling us here. Where God's people here share in that circumcision of the heart through faith in Christ. 
The fact is that none of us, Gentile or Jew, none of us can keep God's law perfectly. Whether we know the written version really well, or just a little bit, or not at all, in one sense it doesn't matter, because the law of God condemns all of us. It shows all of us that we're sinners. It shows all of us that none of us are worthy of God's love. None of us can work hard enough. None of us can do well enough to please God or to deserve his help or his hope. But you see, there's, there's one person. I keep saying nobody's ever done it. But of course, you know there's one person who has. One and only one. And that's the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the perfect law keeper. Singular. Only one. And so before the law, however we come to find out about it, before the law, we stand condemned. But what the Lord Jesus did is he took that condemnation himself in our place. He suffered the consequences for us that our law-breaking deserved when he died for our sins. But now, in exchange, what has the risen Lord Jesus offered to us? He's offered to us that perfect record of law-keeping of his. He offers it to us whole and complete, and he counts it as ours by grace, as a gift that we could never earn. And so it's because we belong to Jesus. That is why we are true members of the family of God. We belong there because he belongs there. And we belong to him. And so we belong there. So by the power of the Holy Spirit then, what is the Lord Jesus doing now? This is where Paul ends up in verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Notice the capital S there. By the Spirit. People talk about the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, as though the spirit of the law is like this vague impression of maybe what the law kind of means, and the letter is all just that rigid enforcement of the rules. That's not not what Paul means by spirit versus letter. It's spirit with a capital S. It's the Holy Spirit who takes the law of God and puts it in our hearts and makes it so that we can keep it because we love God now because of the supernatural grace of God for us in Christ through the power of His Spirit at work within us. That's what Jesus is doing in us now. He's changing us inwardly through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's making us the true people of God inside with that heart change that produces a real loyalty and love for Him, that real love for God's law, that real commitment to grow in keeping it instead of getting stuck on all the outward formalities and rituals, which is never what God's, law, what God's law has majored on, even in the Old Covenant. It's the Spirit with a capital S, the Holy Spirit, who is working in our hearts that inward reality that God really values. That's what we should desire. That's what we should long to see growing in our own hearts and in our families and in our church family, because that's what God wants to give us. And that is what he has given to us in Jesus. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, um, our consciences accuse us of all the ways we've broken your law. And Lord, we recognize that we haven't sinned just against the natural law. We have your law 
as nobody else in history has had it, the full revelation of it in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments. And yet, Lord, you know. You know that we have broken it, not only before our conversion, but throughout the Christian life, that sin keeps rearing its ugly head, and so our consciences accuse us. But Lord, we take refuge in Christ. We thank you for his perfect law-keeping, his perfect obedience, and his righteousness that he's given to us, whole and complete. And Lord, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to renew our hearts so that we might have your law written within us to obey you from the inside out because we love you, because you love us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.